had to read it twice to get the lesson, if that makes sense. So I think with Austin, it's almost like, you know, if, if you're using it as advice, good, and it can make you feel better and it can be something to hold on to. But read it again and then see, like, does does that lesson shift or does what I think Austin is saying hold up? With the podcast, we want to sort of bring these authors down to a human level. We kind of try to, you know, look past those romanticized versions of them because I just think they're more relatable or interesting that way too and I think it brings another level of understanding to the writing at least it does for me welcome to perennials a podcast about growing up getting wise and trying to live a good life I'm Victoria Russell One of the reasons my mom named me Victoria was because she loves Victorian literature. She loves authors like Charlotte Bronte, Elizabeth Gaskell, and Charles Dickens. So I guess I was kind of destined to love books and to be drawn to 19th century literature too. My mom and I both went to Drew University for college and we both studied English. And my mom wrote about Mary Wollstonecraft who wrote A Vindication for the Rights of Women for her senior thesis. And for my capstone project, I wrote about Mary Shelley, who was Mary Wollstonecraft's daughter, and who's known most known for writing Frankenstein. And then when I did my, my senior thesis on Jane Austen, one of the professors on my defense committee was also a professor on my mom's defense committee. <laughs> so about a year ago, my mom told me, oh, I just heard about this podcast called Bonnets at Dawn. She heard about it from one of her favorite booktubers, Kate Howe, and she said, I think you need to check it out because they talk a lot about Jane Austen and the Brontes. She was saying, you know, it's right up our alley. And sure enough, it it was totally up my alley. (laughs) Since Bonnets at Dawn began a few years ago, hosts Lauren Burke and Hannah K. Chapman have broadened the scope. So they're not solely focusing on Jane Austen and the Brontes anymore, but on many different women writers from the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries. And they work so hard, (laughs) Hannah and Lauren. They do so much research. They talk to experts. They go on authors' house visits. They go to conferences and conventions. They record at pub trivia. They talk about everything from characters in the books to the author's biographies and their historical context and the fandom that surrounds all these books and authors. And in addition to being really smart and insightful, Lauren and Hannah are also really funny and down to earth. It's super fun to listen to them. It was such a joy to record this episode with them and to get to talk about some of the wisdom they've taken from the books and authors that they love, from the process of making this podcast, and from their friendship with each other. Okay, so not every Perennials listener isn't a Jane Austen or a Bronte fan, but I think there's a fair amount of overlap. I think most people are familiar with Pride and Prejudice and Jane Eyre to some degree, so if you had to be quarantined at either the Bennett household or Mr. Rochester's manor, which would you choose and why? And just for some context, the Bennett's household would be Mr. and Mrs. Bennett and the five daughters. It's pre-marriage, but also Mr. Collins is visiting. And Mr. Rochester's mm-hmm. household, it's Rochester, Jane, Adele, the housekeeper, 
and Bertha's still alive, so she could kill you in your sleep. It's hard because you either pick one and you are killed, or you pick the other and you kill yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Which do you choose? It's really hard. I mean, I need my personal space and alone time, so I'm gonna risk death and stay, um, and go and go. You know, Team Bronte. I think I'm gonna just, you know take my chances also i love a mystery so mm. i would probably be like investigating in that household trying to figure it all out it would give you something to do yeah it would give me something to do and i heard the potatoes are pretty good yeah. at the Bennett, so <laughs> i think i might go there mm. i think it could be fun it's just a short walk to town and if collins is there that means the offices are around and there's probably going to be like a party soon so but you are quarantined Oh, yeah. Okay, sorry. No. Um, yeah, I still don't want to get set on fire. So, <laughs> yes, I'm, yeah, I'm going to stick with the Bennets. It's okay, fine. Right. Yeah. I did feel like, oh, I feel like Rochester's house is a little more for introverts and the Bennets mm-hmm. is probably a little more of an extroverted house, but. Do you think Lauren is an introvert? That's I don't know. interesting. I don't know. Lauren, do you think you're an introvert? Um, I am... I think I present as an extrovert. I mm. think I'm I'm out and when I'm out in the world because I think sometimes when we're out in the world, Hannah, it feels like you need your space a little bit more sometimes. Like you're a little bit more private and I'm a little bit more out there. But like secretly inside I'm like, "Oh, I I need quiet time." I think I'm an extrovert, but I don't trust strangers. <laughs> I don't know what it is. I think I'm a private extrovert. Yeah. But I do like to be around lots of people. So Yeah, that Bennett house sounds good. Oh, you're into it. Oh, wow. No, I'm like running away from all those sisters. So I'm curious. I know you've talked about this on your show, but for perennials listeners who haven't met you yet and who are going to listen after they hear this episode, how did you both arrive at you your respective loves for Jane Austen and the Brontes? Ooh, this is, um, I feel like this answer every time I give it changes. I know it's a big, it's actually a very big question, but (laughs) whatever it means to you today. Um, I will say that when I was a kid, my mother really like pushed me towards the literary classics and we had like a deal, like we'd go to Walden books that will age me because there are definitely no Walden books (laughs) left. Um, and haven't been for a long time, but we'd go and she'd say, like, you can get one book that you love, which was usually like an R.L. Stein or a Babysitter's Club or something. And then I will get you one classic to read. And she was always giving me something that was like a bit more like older, a little, something to like aspire to. So she'd be like, here's Babysitter's Club number seven. And here's Jane Eyre, which they don't really go together. But um, I think... Uh, yeah, it was my mother kind of mm. pushing those books on me, which we we hear that from a lot of people uh, on the show, actually. So I think she's responsible for a lot of things. Um, I think what I've recently come to realize with the Brontes is that something I've I've been responding to in their literature my entire life is this sense of... Um, I mean, really, with with Charlotte and Emily, you have, like, a lot of rage. And in Anne's work, you have this sort of, like, restrained anger. Mm. And I think that is something, um, because I've always, like, 
put on a happy, you know, face and kind of repressed a lot of things that have happened to me over the course of my life. And I think I just did a rereading of Agnes Gray and I was like, oh, that's, that's what I've been like really responding to in this work. All of this like female anger and how do you express that and sort of like feeling like simpatico with that. So I think I was maybe I'm still like an angry kid or an angry adult. And uh, yeah, I think I think that's what I'm into with their work. But I will say this, that changes all of the time. Like every time I read something, I'm like, oh, wait, maybe that's what I love. I think (laughs) that's what I love. So it is like a lifelong relationship of like discovery and rediscovery with those guys for me. That definitely resonates with me a lot and reminds me of that, the episode where you had, I'm sorry, I forget the poet's name. Um, uh, Rita Maria Martinez. Yes. And she wrote the book of poetry, The Jane and Bertha in Me. And kind of, mm-hmm. I like the idea of seeing Jane Eyre and Bertha as two sides of a coin rather than totally separate. Um, yes. That, that definitely resonates with me. There is, um, now this is Dr. Amber Poliot said this, and she said this the other day on the show in an episode that's coming up, but we talked a lot about Jane Eyre and Charlotte Bronte and like the divided self. So like this, you know, woman's role and like how women are supposed to behave and the ideal woman versus sort of like the internalized, like repressed anger. And um, yeah, I, Amber said it better listen to that episode. It's great. But, (laughs) but yeah, I think that's something I think about quite a bit, like the divided self. Yeah, that really resonates with me. What about you, Hannah? Um, I was a fairly contrary child, and probably a contrary adult. So my my tongue. Yeah. (laughs) Um, my mum gave me so many books that I still own and I'm like maybe I'll read these one day but I definitely had this thing where if my mum gave me something to read then I wasn't really going to do it but I did watch Pride and Prejudice for the first time when I was like five I used to sneak downstairs and watch it with my mum like when it came out I think on Sunday nights and she'd tape it on a video and then watch it when we were all in bed so I remember doing that and then when I was 12 um, I guess I just said can I borrowed Pride and Prejudice to take on holiday and read it and just really liked it and then after that I just kind of quietly got on with it myself and I kind of accidentally started working at the Jane Austen Centre I wasn't a super fan or anything I just lived in Bath I'd read the books we'd studied them once in school and I liked the adaptations and then yeah just kind of like reread them all again and then started to get back into it but honestly I hadn't read many classics I was like a big YA fantasy child that was my jam women in armor that's what I liked and then uh hadn't read the Bronzes until we started doing this show so I guess I'm like the opposite of Lauren <laughs> and it's interesting because you would think like if you were super into fantasy and YA that you would be that feels more Bronte to me, kind of like if they were alive now, they'd be writing these like epic fantasy YA stories, romantic ones. Yeah, but like Jane Austen's got the banter, right? She's yeah. all about dialogue. And I think that's what I like. And I definitely prefer books where, well, I definitely prefer funny stuff over angsty stuff. Mm. And 
I really love I really love well-written dialogue and that's something that Jane Austen's always been able to do and for whatever reason um even when I was a child I remember reading all sorts of books and just being like this dialogue is people don't talk like that at all Mm. and I always equate Jane Austen to Nora Ephron who I think writes amazing dialogue in films and it's just I think that's what I was drawn to was just Mm. the way people spoke to each other and it's not massively descriptive like couldn't read Lord of the Rings because that was too descriptive and so it really really winds me up when people dismiss Jane Austen who haven't read her because they say like oh I don't want to hear about bonnets and I'm like well great she's the author for you because it's all dialogue yeah and she doesn't want to hear about bonnets either (laughs) no exactly so yeah sometimes the Bronze's feel a bit prosy to me (laughs) I'm you know I'm getting there I'm reading them yeah yeah you love Jane Eyre when you read it I like Jane Eyre because there was um, kissing in it. (laughs) 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 Yeah, I like that. And I really liked uh, The Tenant of Wildfell Hall. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't. I'm going to be honest. I've only read Jane Eyre out of the Bronte's works. So I do really want to read The Tenant of Wildfell Hall. Um, And not, not to go on too much of a tangent, but I know you guys are about to do some profiling of Ellen Montgomery, right? Um, I think you said you have some episodes about Ellen Montgomery coming up. Well, we've got the read along coming up, but then we also, I just did tape the episode with, uh, Kate and Trina regarding, uh, Prince Edward Island. We haven't done like a big deep dive on her. Um, also like the read along is to like, just sort of like, just get familiar with her because she's someone that we don't really know very much about. So we're testing the waters now, really. Yeah, it's funny timing because I started this uh, Perennials book club um, mm-hmm. and am reading Anne of Green Gables now. And I hadn't read the book since I think I read Anne of Green Gables like when I was eight or nine or something like that. And then I, I loved the miniseries, but I hadn't read the book in probably like 20 years. And when I started reading, I was like, oh, my gosh, her dialogue reminds me a lot of Jane Austen. And the figure of Anne is kind of this wild girl who hasn't been tamed yet. And I kind of felt like, you know, obviously it's very funny and there's a lot that's really comforting about it. But she also has a pretty traumatic past. Um, So I don't know. I kind of felt like, oh, this is almost like a little marriage between Austin and and like Jane Eyre if, if it was a lighter, you know a lighter take on a figure like Jane Eyre, who's this orphan who has this really traumatic past, you know? A lot of people have said that, which is why I've been sort of wanting to read it, that it seems like a good bridge between the two. um, And that there's like an obvious influence of, you know, both Austin Bronte and then also Louisa May Alcott as well. So yeah, I'm, I'm can't wait to sort of dive a little deeper into uh that world that was just it's weird it's just one of those that like sort of passed me by and Mm. it's funny when I suggested a read-along in our group I was like oh everyone in this group has read this except for me (laughs) (laughs) feels like anyway there's so much variety to your show and like you go really deep with (laughs) um you do a lot of research you have interviews you go to like conferences and events and I'm just curious how how doing the show has affected your relationship to the books and the authors that you've loved for a long time? Does it 
add to your enjoyment and deepen your relationship with the books? Does it ever kind of, you know, are there times when it almost inhibits your enjoyment of some authors or some books? Because the more you learn, the more you're like, oh, I don't like that thing about them. Um, I'm curious what your how it has affected those relationships. Um, yeah, I think my personal relationship with Jane Austen has improved because the way I read Austen has changed a lot. Um, I think a lot more about like the historical context than I did when I was first reading her works or even, you know, as an adult, but pre-show, it has really affected my patience for people who think they know what Austen is about. And this isn't just people that dismiss her, but people that kind of hold her up for things that I just don't think are present in her works. So, um, you know, she she gets used a lot by the alt-right as like a person that's writing about like traditional values. I think that's a really interesting uh, <laughs> thing that's happened with Austin that hasn't happened with a lot of other writers. Mm -hmm. And so that can be frustrating because you then find that when you say like, I'm a fan of this author or I'm a fan of these works. And then suddenly there are all of these connotations that don't mean anything to you or don't represent you, but then you kind of don't want to be tarred with that brush. Um, I taught, I, uh, taught a I did a lecture at university uh, talking about like how she'd been co-opted and one of the students at the end was like knowing that how can you still read her work and the answer to that is because it it's nothing to do with Jane Austen it's nothing to do with her at all so that's been a really interesting kind of shift in that when I was younger I maybe felt defensive about reading Jane Austen because it seemed uncool to like the people that I was friends with. And as an adult, I, I feel defensive of Jane Austen because people have this idea that she's an incredibly conservative and like repressed woman that just isn't the case. And so I feel like defensive about what people think of who she was as a person, not how they feel about her writing. So that's been the big change for me, I guess, as a reader of Jane Austen. I think what's interesting about that too is that like, for both Austin and the Brontes and the other authors that we've covered on the show, it feels like one road has just led us to another, like naturally. And we haven't been sort of like exhausted by it yet. Like we've just been like, oh, that's interesting. We should look at that. Or, okay, that's that's another thing. We should like maybe compare and contrast that. Like I just feel like we just keep learning new things. And so we're still interested, like we're still as intrigued by these authors, if not more, honestly, I have to say. For my my senior thesis in college, I wrote about Jane Austen and how, actually you had, a, you had an episode about the woman who wrote The Making of Jane Austen. Um, mm -hmm. and, Stephanie Loser. Mm -hmm. Yes, thank you. <laughs> um, no worries. And... Yeah, my thesis was kind of about how if you study the way that people receive Jane Austen and what they put onto her, you know, it tells you a lot about the culture um, mm -hmm. rather than about her because, you know, yeah. as, um, as you kind of talked about in that episode, she's kind of a vague enough figure and her writing is kind of, um, especially when it comes to things that are more political, like there's always something kind of like hidden in her about her and in her writing um, or just not totally she's not super explicit about her views so yeah there's a lot of opportunity to put things onto her but it's pretty fascinating to then study like as you do the fandom around these things and just the reach that they have because 
it is kind of never ending to see how these texts can be read and interpreted and reinterpreted and repurposed and things like that. Yeah, I have to say, like, I think for me too, like, I mean, I obviously love Jane Austen. I think we really love and respect the authors that we cover on the show. Um, so, but I was never crazy about like Mansfield Park. Mm. Just, I mean, and that's a lot of people not huge on Mansfield Park. So yeah. I was kind of almost dreading our read along that we did last year um, of it. Cause I, I think the last time I read it, it just felt like such a slog, but um, I really came around to it. Just bringing all the different experts um, that we had on the show and then just going through all of the different articles and engaging with our audience who was just like super smart and super on it in our Facebook threads. Um, just, it brings a new level of understanding. And I was just suddenly super engaged with her and her work and, uh, really in, like really into that book now. Mm. I, I don't love it, love it, but I like my attitude towards it has absolutely changed. And I like can't wait to read it again to see just what else I find. What's kind of nice about Bonnets at Dawn, especially when we do a read along, is because we have sort of reaction from a crowd in real time. So we can kind of gauge how people have like viewed the book in the past and um, sort of like what misconceptions they might have. Um, I think with Jane Austen and Mansfield Park in particular, that was an interesting one where we had a lot of people that sort of put Jane Austen in a bubble with regards to slavery. And it was almost like this idea of like, she has no idea, like what slavery is, or like it has nothing to do with her and she would never sort of touch that or talk about that issue. And then when you actually go and like study the book or study her life, you see all of these connections that she has to the slave trade and understanding that she has of the slave trade and how that's reflected in Mansfield Park. And you're just like, oh, okay. So that one in particular was a very, I think, enlightening read along for me. And it did feel like a game changer for us just in the show as well. I'm curious what your relationship is to reading books for sheer enjoyment and entertainment and reading books for self-improvement or for to gain knowledge or wisdom. Um, I think it's for people who love books, it's obviously not one or the other. But I'm I, I think about um like in Pride and Prejudice, Darcy says a lady has to improve her mind with extensive reading. And I feel like Austin's kind of like making fun of him, but um I'm curious how reading and reading these books in particular has been entertaining but also possibly a part of you know um looking for for guidance in your life or looking for wisdom I would say with Austin if you are reading her books and looking for guidance or looking for like a roadmap to life it's always always worth like you said with like making fun of Darcy just really questioning um it is what this character is saying is that what Jane Austen thinks or is she writing a character and using a character's voice and saying what that character would say because I think it's really easy to take what she's written as what she thinks or what she would suggest mm -hmm. and obviously it's easier to identify it when it's a villain 
But when you, I mean, Mansfield Park's a great example, and we talked a lot about it in our read-along, but if you read Mansfield Mansfield Park and you think that Fanny is the moral centre of the book, then your reading will be different if you think that Fanny might not be justified or right in everything she does and that that's a device that Jane Austen uses. So I think it can be really hard with Austen to take a lesson like as easily as just like kind of picking it up and taking it out. I definitely, uh, I read Persuasion when I was in the middle of this like long spell of unrequited love with this guy and I was like Jane Austen is telling me that if I am just patient Wentworth is going to come back you know he <laughs> I just need to stick it out and it will be fine and then I reread it after that business was over and I realized that I hadn't what I hadn't seen before was that Anne Elliot is completely resolved to the fact that he's not coming back so it isn't it isn't a book about someone's waiting mm. being rewarded at all but because that's what I was kind of living in at the time that's the lesson I was taking from it and then afterwards I realized it it really was it's not a book about hope it's a book about realism and kind of settling into the life that you have you know like the family retrenches and they have to adapt to it and they have to get used to it and Anne has to get used to living in a world where Wentworth is back and he's quite possibly in love with or going to be engaged to another person it isn't a book about her just waiting and waiting and still having hope because for most of it she really doesn't so I think that was a lesson that I learned but I had to read it. I had to read it twice to get the lesson, if that makes sense. So yeah. I think with Austin, it's almost like you want to take the lesson that you, you know, if if you're using it as advice, good. And it can make you feel better and it can be something to hold on to. But read it again and then see, like, does does that lesson shift or does what I think Austin is saying hold up down the line? I think that's why people read her again and again, because you do you learn new stuff and you take you take different things. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic. Yeah. Thank you. It's <laughs> <laughs> a great answer. It's a it's such a difficult question, I think, to answer too. For and I wonder, Hannah, if you feel this way as well, because like both of us are writers, and we we were editors, and um, we read very. I think maybe very differently. I don't. I I. This is going to sound terrible. I feel like I don't read a ton for like pure enjoyment. Mm. There is a lot of reading for work. And so you're just sort of looking for very different things. Um, doesn't mean you can't like enjoy it along the way, but um, yeah, it's kind of interesting. I was sitting here like, huh, when was the last time I like read a book for pleasure? Mm. Interesting. H- hard question. I don't know. I like Hannah's answer best. (laughs) (laughs) No, but that's also really helpful because actually one of my just more logistical questions for you guys was like, how do you read so much? Because I just find I use as a kid, I just read constantly. And now I feel like I don't even have the attention span that I used to. Um, But I do think like that was partially the reason I am. I decided with Anne of Green Gables to actually read it aloud chapter by chapter. Mm -hmm because then I'll have some accountability. So it is, it is kind of yeah. like, okay, now it's like a work, not work, but, you know, there's an accountability there versus I find it harder and harder nowadays to just sit down and read a book for pleasure and not feel like I'm somehow, I don't know, like I should be doing something else. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think that may be one of the driving forces into actually starting this show 
to be honest with you, because Hannah and I, I think out of our friend group, um, are like some of the few people that actually really enjoy classic literature. And I think we really wanted a space to talk about that as well. And so having the show sets us up with a deadline. <laughs> like we're like, okay, we are taping an episode on whoever, you know, next month. So we've got to mm-hmm. read a bio. We've got to find an expert. We've got to, you know, read this article and also like read, you know, this book. So yeah. Logistically about... speaking, the read-alongs are exhausting. And there's a reason yes. that we do like a couple a year and people will say like, can you read this? And it's like, no way. Cause <laughs> it isn't, cause you have to research it as well. It's, it's not just, we don't just read it chapter by chapter and then like, here's a hot take. And then we do the next one you like back stuff up you contextualize it Lauren does a lot of interviews it's yeah it's it's a big undertaking um sometimes I resent it but not all the time <laughs> I can still read for pleasure um but it really depends on the book I nearly like burnt the last book I read because it made me so angry it was by a man I thought I'd give Ian McEwen another go and then I remembered why for the last what three to four years I've like staunchly refused to read books by men <laughs> <laughs> people seem I I say it I say it as a throwaway thing um someone will say like oh have you read this and I go I don't read books by men and they get really upset but (laughs) the amount of conversations where I've had with people where I've said what was the last book you read by a woman name one book on your bookshelf that's written by a woman uh can you count on one hand how many books in your life you've written by a woman and it's they don't remember the last book by a woman they read they don't own a book by a woman they maybe never have uh some people just say that they don't like them so I have no issue with me as one person Mm -hmm. trying to up the numbers on how many women are read (laughs) yeah yeah true story cooking the books (laughs) you know those Instagram things where it's like fill out you know the, the what types of books do you read and there's a list of genres and when I saw the women's lit genre I was like that is such a weird I mean I've thought about this before (laughs) obviously but just like checking it off like I had to put a little note like I'm gonna check this box because I understand that that is a way that we categorize but I just want to acknowledge that it's a very weird thing to do and say it's not weird it's sexist like cool you know call a dog a dog that's sexism yeah right there Mm -hmm. yeah and then to like have this idea that all women write about the same thing. I think, I mean, that's a big thing with the Brontes. People will say like, oh, I really love their work, but I just hate the romance in in their work. And I'm like, that's fine. You know, that's okay. That's not really what I respond to in their work. And I have lots of thoughts on Jane Eyre and colonialism than actually just Charlotte and colonialism that Mm. I think are worthy of exploration. But, um, you know, just to reduce every story, every woman's story has to be about romance. Otherwise, it's just, it's no good. Well, you to say that if a woman is writing about romance, that her work is like unworthy of yeah. anything, you know, it's such against, listen, sexism. It is right. sexism. It's a double standard. You can't yeah. win either way. No, you really no, can't. You, can't. <laughs> you really can't. I really liked the episode you did engaging in the age of Austin where you kind of talked about reading books specifically Austin's books but um, reading books from previous centuries through a contemporary lens and understanding the context and we kind of touched on this with Mansfield Park in particular but you had these two professors talking about you know 
reading these books with their students and kind of working through like sexism and racism and obviously there's going to be like some very upsetting or there will be disturbing things. I mean, not like we're all these precious little innocents because those things are still obviously (laughs) rampant today, but Mm -hmm. um, I'm curious how you kind of hold that stuff as you read um, the, the authors that you, that you read in the, during the pot for the podcast. I, I would say that, um, I just, I try and just like see it for what it is, um, and tackle it like head on. Right. Uh, I pushed for a really long time to read a book called eight cousins, which is by Louisa May Alcott. And then we were reading it. And then there's this, you know, horrible stereotype of a Chinese man in there that I just completely forgotten about if I'm honest that I'd read as a child and had no issues with and then read as an adult and it's a hard read but I do think that something you you don't need to read it that doesn't you don't have to be outraged or audibly scandalized because sometimes that sucks up the conversation we read wives and daughters and there was I can't remember there's one set of chapters and most of the comments were just oh like the comments about race were like a splash of cold water like it took me out of the book and I just I think sometimes it can overwhelm the rest of the conversation because people want to like flag up that they are offended and I just think that like we're all reading it from the 20th which century are we in 21st the 20 we're all reading it welcome (laughs) Hannah (laughs) oh my gosh I'm here I've made it Uh, we're all we're all reading it from the same like time point right and it is shocking and I just I just worry that sometimes when you're reading it a lot of stuff is shocking like the treatment of women the treatment of children the treatment of people of color and you've got to you've got to read it and you've got to point it out and you've got to like understand why someone's written it but it's not a reflection on you or the time that you're living in because it's a moment in time and it's past and to pretend it didn't happen or to only talk about that I think is where you start to have issues discussing those problems right does that make sense yeah I mean I like I'm a woman of color I grew up loving the classics I've certainly like taken heat from my friends who are like I can't believe you like that stuff like (laughs) come on like think about you know Bertha in Jane Eyre like how are you okay with that and I'm not condoning that treatment at all I actually think it's important that we actually talk about these things that's how we like don't forget and that's how we also track progress I think I think these are important discussions for us to still have so you know it's almost better for us too when we do a read along to have a book I don't want to say that a book that's problematic but I you know I think it's it's important that we don't ignore any of these uh moments that make us feel uncomfortable I think it's Mm -hmm. important that we actually talk about them and work through them and work through different perspectives as well because you know that's one thing that has been really heartening about Bonnets at Dawn too, like approaching these texts as a woman of color, like I'll say like, hey, here's something that like makes me feel uncomfortable and I want to talk about it. I want to talk about race and Wuthering Heights. And, um, you know, for the most part, people are really like, oh, okay, let's, let's have that conversation. That's interesting. That's something I haven't thought about before. Because I think in school, when we talk about the classics, I remember, in, and this is in our episode that is about Wuthering Heights. 
I did try to like flag some of these thoughts or ideas to my teachers and they were not prepared to have discussions about race in Wuthering Heights or have discussions about racism at all. And so they would just go like, that's not what this book is about and shut me out. So these are things that I've actually wanted to talk about for many, many years. And then here's like a space and a forum to do it. Now, that's not to say that like we don't have pushback on some yeah. of those things like yeah. at all. That's we completely do. But um, I would say for the most part, people are very open minded and it leads to some really great discussions. I really liked what you said about uh just you don't have to be okay with a book mm-hmm. it's, that's not your job you're not reading it to be okay with it and you're not reading it to like for it to confirm your politics I would say that like I'm very I'm, I'm very white I don't know what very white means but I'm I am a white woman and reading Louisa May Alcott I think is like a good check because she was a like staunch abolitionist right and she mm-hmm. has written some weird shit like she's yeah. written some really weird stuff and you read it and you're like, is this, is this all right? Is she like, does she like this black character that she's describing? Because she's comparing them to an animal a lot. So like, was she racist? And then you look into it and I just think that as someone who wants to be, you know, I want to, I want to be aware of stuff. I want to be like a good friend, a good ally. I want to like lift up voices. And I think it's important to know that other people that were doing that at their time were still getting it wrong and you need to it's a whole it's part of a whole like Louisa May Alcott's good stuff isn't written off by the fact that she wrote some problematic stuff but at the same time you can't erase it or pretend it didn't happen and the same will happen to all of us right so you've got to make sure that every part of what you're doing kind of matches up and just question what you say and what you write and like does this sit with like your beliefs and stuff and I just think it's hard sometimes with writers in the old days where what they're writing is subjectively better than what other people were writing but it's still bad by our standards and yeah just not not forgetting it I think it's good for us all to remember that yeah that's really helpful and I think it is so interesting that just by identifying those pain points people's reactions to you identifying it tells you a lot about how much have we really progressed? You know, like obviously um, things are not entirely the same, but um, sometimes we definitely give ourselves too much credit collectively, I think. Uh, I think yeah. White, white, yeah. white people definitely give ourselves a lot of undue credit. Um, and like, yeah, definitely. Was Louisa May Alcott racist? Like, yeah, because we all, you know, are swimming in that and like have it yeah. internally and like, I think what you're saying is helpful. It's uh, it's like, yeah, she's going to have, she was thinking about that and she had her stance and she was still a human being who was raised in a certain culture and had whatever personal associations. And so it's going to be a mixed bag. Like we all have a mixed bag. So I think there is something about this moment in time where we, a lot of people try to present like a very somehow like perfect front of like, I am perfectly yeah awoken Mm -hmm. you know and like or like I am perfectly correct and I I've figured it out and I'm not gonna say the wrong thing ever do the wrong thing and um it's like hubris you know (laughs) and like actually gets in the way of learning and doing better yeah I 
Hannah, you'll have to remind me of the author, but I think overall, like, I mean, what we're aiming for at Bonnets is just like a way to expand the discussion. And we were talking about an author the other day that was um, anti-women getting the right to vote, which is a lot of authors George that we on the show. Was it George right. Eliot? Okay. Mm, no, I was like, was it George Eliot was it? or George Sand? Or it was... <laughs> I can't I cannot remember who the author was but the argument was um you can't give women the right to vote without giving women education because then you're just giving men two votes hmm. was the point so what they were like they were saying like unless it comes with education you can't just say like here it is because they're still controlled by men you're not liberating them yeah. like a vote doesn't equal mm. liberation like equality equals it like education equals it um the ability to own land and to be your own person is how you get that and just automatically giving someone the vote when mm. they they don't know any better yeah and you're I not think fixing that... anything who was that I know <laughs> well there are quite a few female authors that had that viewpoint and the point shouldn't be sort of like they are bad feminists bad women bad women you know just not to like tar and feather them it's the really to open up that conversation and have the conversation about, you know, the patriarchy <laughs> and that, you know, how that works. Um, so I think that's kind of ultimately what we're trying to do, less of a hot take and more of a like, let's sort of try to broaden the conversation and understand. Yeah. And also, like, not every woman writer is a feminist. I just realized I said it was George Eliot, but like George Eliot wasn't a feminist. She was a George Eliotist. <laughs> right she was she was very much like I should write I am smart mm. but she it wasn't like all women should be able to do this <laughs> right it's like just her well you guys do such a good job with it so thank you for everything that you do um Thanks. I love thank listening you. to those conversations and learning and just getting all that nuance that like I think our brains so quickly want to just be able to like you said say like good or bad <laughs> and I yeah. love that you guys get into so much of the nuance and the gray area just don't be scared of the hard stuff yeah yeah, that's the, yeah if it's hard then like dig into that because that's mm -hmm. where the that's where the learning is happening when well, it's difficult yeah that's a great uh I think that's applicable to a lot of things right yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I said yeah in a very strange, very strange way. Sorry. Also, I talked over you, which is my trademark move. So I apologize. <laughs> no, you're good. I know you guys have some like top literary moments to share of um, some lessons you learned from a book or an author or letters or a house visit. Or I know we talked about lots of different things. So would you like to share some of your some of your top lessons or moments? I mean, there's been like so many. I I know I like sent a really blurry picture of this to Hannah a few months ago. Um, but um, like I'm a newish mom and also like I'm now a freelance writer and um, I have a this podcast and crazy schedule and life. And I think I'm always trying to balance you know, my home life, my work life, my <laughs> child, my garden, like just there's too many balls in the air. And I always feel um, like I'm not getting anything done or making any progress. And so I was reading Literary Women by Ellen Mowers the other day. And there's this great letter from Harriet Beecher Stowe. Um, and 
Harriet Beecher Stowe is someone that comes up on our podcast all the time. We have not done an episode about her. She's just sort of like tangentially connected to so many different authors. It's like she's stalking us. You have but... to take a shot if she comes up. So yeah. take a shot. <laughs> so take a shot, perennial listeners. Um, but she has this great letter that she wrote to a friend. And it's like, it's just really funny. Like her letters are very, very charming. Um which is kind of interesting because I think Uncle Tom is very, it's kind of a, it's just very pious. It's a little, it's kind of a difficult read, but she has these very charming letters and she's writing about like how her sink has been broken for weeks. And she's just like trying to get her sink fixed and making no movement on it at all. But really it's all about like all of these different things that are going on in her life. I think she's got like She has a ton of children. She's got like at least five children at this point. She is teaching Sunday school. She is uh, writing. She is also, I think at this point, also moving and redecorating her home. Like she's doing nine million different things. And in this letter, she's just like, I'm not getting anything done. I'm not doing anything. Except she's doing all of this work (laughs) and all of this emotional labor. (laughs) Yep. And she's just tracking it by like her pro- like her literary output, which she's like, it's none. She's like, I need to find two hours. I just need to find two hours to get something done. But I'm constantly sort of interrupted and um, I just can't, I can't get it done. And then it's really interesting at the end of the letter, she wraps it up by being like really funny because she's also trying to entertain the reader, which I think is very interesting, which is sort of natural as a storyteller and a writer. And uh, there's just something about this letter that like makes me cry because I just it feels <laughs> I'm like, yes, this is this is me. I'm def- I'm definitely also trying to get my bathroom sink finished as well. Like, why can't I do this? Um, it just feels so relatable and real. And so, um, yeah, I took a blurry picture of it the other day and like sent it to Hannah. And I was like, I am Harriet Beecher Stowe. <laughs> But you find these moments, and I think that's something that I love about our show and, like, looking into the lives of these authors that are just so relatable and you're just like, wow, nothing has changed in 200 years. Um, And it makes you feel, like, less terrible about yourself (laughs) or less terrible about myself, at least. Uh, It's funny that... Lauren you went straight to like a letter because I was thinking like oh yeah Louisa May Alcott's diary Louisa May Alcott wrote a diary and it was like just a sentence here and there it's just like did this this month sometimes there are just no no entries for months and months and months and I read her journals around the time that she was writing Little Women and she didn't enjoy writing Little Women she didn't want to write Little Women she didn't like writing a diary it seems she got no birthday presents I think for her 36th birthday (laughs) that got a diary entry I really related to that Um, and just feeling sad about that and feeling frustrated that you're not doing the work that you want to do and maybe you'll never be recognized for the work that you want to do or feeling like you're trapped doing something and that is something that a lot of women writers who ended up writing for children I think felt or had to to deal with where they were writing stuff that was maybe fun and they were writing it under a pseudonym and then they had to write for these like children's magazines and again the whole like is what they're saying what they believe stuff comes into it especially when they're writing for more conservative titles that have like a stance on how children should be raised but definitely just Louisa May Alcott's kind of exhaustion and just you just have to work 
like it is just tiring and you have to get it done and it's not fun and it isn't glamorous and I just really relate to just the fatigue of trying to to write and have a full-time job in an office where I publish scientific academic journals and I know nothing about science so (laughs) you you find that in the like in their journals and in their letters like all of that emotional labor and all of that fatigue and all of that like like Louisa May Alcott working for her family yeah to save her family so you find that in those uh journals and letters and it's just so relatable it's almost as good as like I, I for Charlotte I enjoy her letters maybe even more so than her books to be honest um because she is so honest and because she can't give you sort of like the fairy tale ending yeah um in in those those letters like especially the letters that she wrote after her sisters died um that are her not understanding what her future is going to look like and just they're so brutal and so honest and so good at just capturing that like that sadness and that anger and um they are very relatable (laughs) in a way so um yeah I I think those have always been really personal moments for us. Um, even when we were we were just at Wordsworth Grasmere in November, and we didn't really know much. We still don't really know that too much about Dorothy Wordsworth. But looking through her journals together with the curator, it's just like, and also seeing how her handwriting changes from when yeah. she's a healthy woman to when she becomes um, sicker later in life. Um that was just such a like intimate and real moment. That was a, that was a good one. Read Dorothy like, Wordsworth journals, guys. They're great. Elizabeth Gaskell. Every time she finishes a book, is like, I ain't writing another book, you guys. I can't do it. I'm out. I'm yeah. out. And then yeah. she needs some money, and she writes another one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, read the letters because it definitely strips the the romantic visions of the romantic visions are over, as Jane Austen would say. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really glad that you guys brought that up because I've been thinking about it so much lately. Like the idea of the fairy, kind of the fairy tale endings in a lot of, particularly like with Jane Austen, when I think about Jane Eyre and Anne of Green Gables, because I'm reading that now, um, the books are so comforting to so many people and they do have these um, generally like Jane Austen, there's a lot of comedy and there's a happy ending And I've just, the more that I learn about the authors, like from listening to your show and doing some of my own reading um, and, and little women's in there too. It's like, they had really difficult lives. um, Some of them. And like Mm -hmm. just a lot of, I mean, obviously the Brontes, there was so much sickness and death around them. And Louisa May Alcott, you know, had her own, um, I think she, she got sick, um, when she was a nurse during the war, right? And then she kind of yeah, dealt with illness yeah. after, right? So, um, mm. I don't know. Just Jane kind of... Austen, I mean, like her dad dies and then she's just living in that financial uncertainty, like what's she going to do? Yeah. And I mean, she died a very <laughs> painful, slow death. So, I know. Yeah, it's wild. Like it affects, I don't think we found one who had like a, a great life. And it's so interesting, just like they bring so much happiness and comfort to the readers. But then also, I think sometimes as a reader, you think, 
especially when you're younger, like not when you're really an adult and you've experienced more, but maybe feel like I want my life to be like this, like as sparkly, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Mm -hmm. and happy as these characters or this, um, or the romantic picture of the author that we might have. And Mm -hmm. I think particularly like right now, um, women are, I've just been thinking a lot about how many women are currently like working from home full time while taking care, being primary caregivers and, you know, um, particularly like in this situation that we're in now, just like the amount of physical labor and emotional labor and stress and everything. And it is actually helpful to know that these authors had had struggles like this too and still you know whether out of necessity because they were trying to make money or also for their own like spirit um they found a way to 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 do this work that they didn't know what the impact was going to be a lot of them like a lot of them didn't really feel that in their lifetime um and even if they did like I was just reading about LM Montgomery and she got a letter from like a 10 year old girl who who wanted a photo of her um and she Ellen Montgomery wrote to her friend like if like okay I'll give her like my author photo but if she really knew what this like you know I'm this like shabby haggard yeah. person yeah I relate to that <laughs> yeah, me too I think that's why I I mean turned the letters in the journal so much though to be honest it's I don't want to say like as a guidebook for how to live my life but it's almost like I need to see that I'm not the only one Mm -hmm. going through sort of some some of these struggles as well so um I don't know I hope we don't like uh crush any dreams or like you know just shatter like with the podcast we want to sort of bring these authors down to a human level um we kind of try to, you know, look past those romanticized versions of them because I just think they're more relatable or interesting that way too, to be honest. So. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of a bummer. (laughs) Yeah. I know. I'm like, Oh, maybe we're a bummer. I don't know. I mean, there might be initial disillusionment, but then I think, I think that Mm -hmm. sense of like common humanity can ultimately be kind of redemptive. Yeah. Personally. Yeah, and I think it brings another under like level of understanding to the writing. At least it does for me. Um, it brings something else like to the books as well. I think it's interesting with Austin that she had the confidence to write books that tackled such interesting subjects and difficult times for her characters, and have the confidence to then um, kind of hide it in light mm. fiction, and to think that like people people are going to read this and people I mean are not gonna she knew Mansfield Park wasn't hitting the audiences there are letters about her just being like cool you're not reviewing this book she sank loads of money into it she like lost it she knew people didn't weren't like responding to Mansfield Park because it was a challenging text and she kind of kept kept going with that because I think she she could have written something that was like on the face of it like really dark but yeah the accessibility of Austin I think is is just wonderful that she well I don't know what I'm saying does that make sense I actually well I think 
one thing it's confident that she got balls, man. It's almost like there, there's all this pressure for them also to be a storyteller and to entertain because yeah. it's so much harder for you to be published, for you to be taken seriously, for you to get a second book, just like all of the hurdles that you have to jump through. So it's like, not only do you have to be good, you know, not only do you have to have something to say, but you also have to be entertaining mm-hmm. and somewhat accessible. And I think a lot of the authors that we cover on the show are, are quite accessible, um, so, you know, thinking about Jane Austen, thinking about Louisa May Alcott. Um, Louisa May Alcott's a pretty obvious example, too, because we do know that she was really conforming to meet the market. Right. And yeah. to make money. Um, and also, like, really tailoring that voice to give people what they want, but then also still sort of get a message out there. Yeah, she's she is in there. Um, and it's lovely when she kind of peeks out and you're like, there you are. Yeah. LMA. I see you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I would love to hear if you have other moments that you want to talk about. Don't trust false bitches. (laughs) Thank you, Jane Austen. (laughs) If someone is like, oh my God, we're going to be friends straight away. Let me tell you all of my secrets. She's Lucy Steele. She's Mm. Isabella Thorpe. That don't trust him. Something's going on. There is a reason this person wants to be your friend so quickly and so wholly and so completely in such a short space of time. I would also put maybe Wickham <laughs> in there as well. Yeah. 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 He's he's a false friend first. Yeah. There are so many characters who um really are trying to get their point across a lot. And like in Middlemarch as well, Rosamond, people mm. will just be what they want what they think you want them to be and then it's all and then it's done and it's over and it, it it's really quick. And I think those are um, those are really interesting lessons to take away from classic fiction. It's a warning. So, it's Don't a trust warning. anyone. <laughs> <laughs> you would get that that warning from that. That is really interesting, though, because I do. I am always really fascinated by how these authors deal with restraint, because mm-hmm. there is something about maybe wanting to be more free, but at the same time having integrity and self control to exercise restraint when it aligns with your values deep down. Mm -hmm. Um, And I do see that a lot in um, like in Jane Eyre, but, and also in Jane Austen, like the characters who in the end seem to have the most integrity also have restraint. (laughs) They're not word vomiting on people right away. Which is so funny because like I am a, oversharer and I talk too much and so I would definitely fall into the Lucy Steele category (laughs) but I aspire to Anne Elliot that's my heart's in the right place you know and I always regret sharing it's never I never do on purpose but yeah so I think it's like a lesson on how to read other people and then but the flip side is that sometimes I'll be talking to someone and I'm like oh no I'm I'm Lucy Steele I I need to stop talking no, I'm totally, Why can't I stop talking? I am totally with you. And I want to do an episode of the podcast that's just called We're All Toxic People sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. That when Absolutely. We, again, when we put people into these categories of like good, bad, racist, not racist, whatever, then we can't actually be honest with ourselves and identify the behaviors that we have under some conditions that might be considered, mm-hmm. you know, like. Uh, yeah. 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 And you have to, you know, who's great at that too is um, I think Elizabeth Gaskell, 
which we yeah. really got out of our wives and daughters read along in particular. Oh my gosh, it, such a good book. What you know, she just really has characters that live in the gray. You can't really mm. easily identify who's the villain here, who's the you know, who's the good guy. Yeah. She really gives you a lot to to chew on there. Do you have time for another moment that you'd like to share? Well, I will say our first trip to Haworth was really special. And I know that's not like, yeah, like obviously, duh. And I think Hannah and I have talked about this quite a bit lately because we've been talking about literary tourism for the show. But um, that was really interesting because that was just like a really difficult period in my life personally. And um, I was rereading Villette, which is a very challenging read. And Victoria, I think you might find it interesting. It is definitely a book about feelings and growth and complicated friendships. And um, it does very much live in the gray as well. And um, it's not a perfect book, but there are a couple scenes that I especially sort of like felt very strongly, um, including this the scene uh, where... Lucy goes to a church and um, she's just in the midst of a very, very dark depression. And um, that month was so strange when we went to Howard because I think it began, I interviewed the gals from the sister's room. So these um, Italian women that run a blog called the sister's room and it's all about the Brontes. And we were having this very like intense discussion about that scene in that book. And I did not know them. Like we had just met that day for the podcast to discuss Charlotte Bronte. And it was kind of amazing how quickly, like we started talking about very intimate things Um, and just like really like just crying as well. Like I was like, it was a very intensely emotional interview. Um, And then to go directly from there, pretty much left from there, went to the airport we get up to Haworth, which is like a huge journey. <laughs> like, I don't even know how many buses and trains we took that first time we went to Haworth. I can't even remember. I think it was like 12 hours we were traveling in the end or something. It was, I just, and I remember at one point too, like we were like talking about like getting like some sort of ride share situation from one place to the other. Like it was crazy. And so like, finally we make it up there via steam train <laughs> and, um, really like the first night before we even visited the Bronte Parsonage and we just walked around and it was sort of like it would rain and then it would be beautiful and sunny and then it was sunset and we were out on the moors and um, I mean it just like sounds really hokey but that was like a big like a big moment. Um, We were reading bits of Jane Eyre and just like sort of talking about not only like what the book meant and what like this sort of pilgrimage meant, but it just felt like, I don't know, like it felt like a release and it just felt like we were together, like best friends together out on the moors and just talking about the things that we loved. And it was just like that month in particular was just a personally like a big, that was like a tragic month for me. And that moment was just like a really big moment of healing really. So it was just kind of, um, you know, we don't make money from the show. We spend a lot of time on the show. That's just, it's not paid, but 
we do get to have these like incredible journeys. And so it is worth it, I think. I I love how you kind of touched on the way that talking about books with someone, you can so quickly, even if you just met them, just start talking about really meaningful things. Um, Mm -hmm. I feel like they're great portals to like really getting to know someone beyond, I guess not in a Lucy Steele way of like, (laughs) you know, um, of, you know, just word vomiting on someone, but you can just start to have these really meaningful conversations and really get to know a person on a deeper Mm -hmm. level through talking about books. Yeah. I've really appreciated some, um, maybe not like just not close friends, like people that are friends or people that are acquaintances who after they find out about the show will then like talk to me I hate it when people I know talk to me about listening to the show that makes (laughs) me very uncomfortable uh but when you know like I'll just I'll get a message from someone and it will just be like oh I was just reading this and I was just wondering what you thought and that's just like that's really nice as well so obviously I think sometimes I take for granted that Lauren and I can have these really intense intense conversations about books and then suddenly in the last few years I've been having not just like really interesting and great chats with people from all different aspects of my life like I do reenactment and some of my reenactment friends who I didn't know read the classics will message me about it and people I know through comics and like work colleagues and then you just have these like little standalone conversations and it's just like a great way of connecting with people and then for every five great conversations you have you have one person who just like reduces everything you do because it's Jane Austen but (laughs) it is it is worth it it balances out Mm. how would you say that it's affected your friendship the two of you like reading together and discussing together and also doing all this work together of of making the podcast what do you think, Hannah? <laughs> what do you I, think, Lauren? I think I probably haven't argued with anyone in my life as much as I've argued with Hannah Chapman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I I think, though, I mean, one of the reasons I wanted to work on a project with Hannah initially, um, when back when we started the show, was because Hannah is so smart and she's so honest and she's such a hard worker as well. Oh, and thank so you. you yeah, you've got a great work ethic. Sitting up straight. <laughs> and so I knew that she would like force me to like raise my game as well. And so I mean, we have like we really get into it like sometimes on mic, less less often now, I think, more so in person. <laughs> but um I think especially when we first started the podcast and it was like, you know, Bonnets at Dawn, Austin versus Bronte, we had a clash, but it didn't mean that we we didn't respect each other and love each other as people. So like, you know, some I would get very defensive, um, especially in the earlier days of the podcast when there would be people that would say like, oh, I don't really know what this is about. Are you pitting women against women? And, and I'm just like, oh, no, like it's not like a Highlander syndrome. Like there can be on, only be one. It's like we are clashing and trying to find the differences to sort of come to a greater understanding. Um, So that, which is kind of one of the reasons why the show evolved and we dropped Austin versus Bronte. Um, But I will say, um, I feel like our relationship is probably 
pretty similar as to how it was in, when it began, but we're just, I mean, we're a great deal closer. Um, I, I talked to Hannah more than most people. I think the only person I talk to more is my husband, even though we are separated <laughs> by thousands of miles in an ocean, right? <laughs> it's so nice that you said that as well about the work ethic stuff, because what's crazy is that um, Lauren is an insanely hard worker and I have so many conversations with my fiance about how I feel so guilty that I don't work as hard as Lauren and I can't keep up. And there's this like pressure to like be as motivated as Lauren who never stops working. (laughs) So that, you know, very nice of you to say that. I think, and with like the argument stuff, now I don't know if you'll agree with this, but I, I think that a lot more in the olden days with the Bronze stuff, I think Lauren can be more defensive and I am more stubborn. Mm -hmm. And so the conversations can be really interesting because sometimes I think Lauren will react to something. And then if I am not reacting to it, it's like, you can't make me react to it. It's like, I've decided (laughs) I don't have an opinion on it. And then it just, you can't break that down. And I don't know if I've gotten better but definitely there were a few times where halfway through an episode, Lauren would just be like, this isn't going to work because you're just, <laughs> you're not saying anything. And I would just be like, I guess I just don't care. <laughs> Which, you know, it can be hard to, I think, have to put up with someone who is just like, you are never going to change my mind. It will not yeah. be changed. I feel um, like we've so, really yeah. <laughs> pushed past that too. I think we really worked past that. It's been hard. I mean, we're constantly trying to find ways to sort of make the podcast work and balance within our own work and writing as well. Like that's the other thing. I think in the early days too, there was just, there was a lot of work. Yeah. When the show started, I was like doing my master's as well. Like I was coming to the end of doing that and I was meant to be in America doing a research trip about um, comics pedagogy is that the word for teaching yeah 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 I tried to use like a real small word there and then just (laughs) undermined it immediately um and then just ended up like recording the podcast and reading Jane Eyre for most of it so (laughs) this should have been your master's thesis honestly yeah but it's it's hard it's what I what I really struggle with um one passion and one interest doesn't have to be all consuming Mm -hmm. and so I really struggle sometimes to identify as someone who is as passionate about Jane Austen as because I meet people who have read all of her books a hundred times and they know so much more than me and again that feeling strongly thing um they just feel so much more strongly about Jane Austen stuff than I do and then I for a long time was doing a lot more comics work than I'm doing at the moment and so having to try and flip between these two very different worlds and like people that you know and just like ways of working and that was really interesting when we first started doing because that's how Lauren and I know each other because of comics and then suddenly you're having to divide that time between these two very different things yeah and so I love that now we've got these two connections and um yeah that's yeah it's just it's just funny I think people grow up thinking like I should have like I should have done my master's on this but this is just one this is just one thing I'm interested in Mm -hmm. and like comics is just another thing and I'm excited to see what in four years time is keeping me up at night because it might not be this and it might not be comics maybe one day it'll be science which is my day job like (laughs) uh, please please bring that day 
That would be great. I, I think that is another thing in broad terms that we've like learned from the show is that, you know, I spent so much of my time initially in my young career sort of like invested in trying to make a publishing career happen and working in that area and working in comics. And I think as I was reaching the end of that um, and when we kind of wanted to start the show, I think really it hit me when we, you and I were together in France, Hannah, because I think we were both at this comic show in Angoulême and had done all these panels and like Hannah had done this amazing, (laughs) amazing job with an art show. (laughs) I think we were just like so overwhelmed. And also like, I was like, I think I want to pivot out of this thing that I've been working towards for like 10, 12 years, but I'm scared to do that without something else to jump to. Um, it's like on, you know, just to bring in a real lowbrow reference here, it's like on Real Housewives and a real housewife <laughs> wants to get divorced and they're like, I'm going to, I'm going to be the new housewife and that'll be my, they call it a lily pad, I think. <laughs> and so I think I was just like, let's start this podcast. And I think for me, selfishly, um, that was a way of me going, okay, it's all right to pivot out of that and try something new. And it's so, because I think it was either late last year or early this year. Who knows? I don't know when it is. I don't know what the day is. Um, But like my dream, like my dream comics publishing job in the UK opened up and I had like this weird week where I was just sad all the time. And I realized it was almost like I was grieving for old dreams. Mm -hmm. And it was sad that like in the past I would have dropped everything, applied for this job and smashed it and been great at it. But if I had applied for it and taken it, I wouldn't have been able to do Bonnets at Dawn anymore. I wouldn't have been able to do a lot of my own writing because my time wouldn't have been my own. My money would have been impacted by a move to working in central London instead of working in Bristol, which is still spenny, but like not as much. Um, And just kind of making way for new interests and just like long term, what are you going to invest in? And that does that changes as you get older. And I think the same the same thing happens with the writers that we look at. Um, a really great writer, Edith Eaton, worked as a journalist for about, what was it, like six years? And she wrote like these anonymous pieces uh, for a newspaper in Montreal. And then she moves to Jamaica. She does a bit of journalism there. And then slowly she she still writes journalistic pieces, but then she starts transitioning into being a novelist and uh, like a prose writer. And it's just interesting seeing people's careers change because people aren't just born a novelist and then that's what they do the whole time. Um, and so that, that yeah, again, just another, the pivot thing. You've, you've got to be able to pivot and just like go where the interest is and just kind of be able to let go of stuff when it's yeah. no longer the thing that's kind of pulling you in. So Yeah. And knowing that you can pivot too, like having like sort of like that confidence, like I'm like, oh, you know what? I can go from this and try something new and start something new. It's okay. And and this is why Lauren and I are great friends, because we take a very simple question about how has this affected your friendship and we treat it like (laughs) a therapy session. So yeah, that is exactly (laughs) what I wanted. Um, <laughs> I want every episode to be a therapy session. I think like what you, what you, the conversation that you opened up, I think is exactly the type of conversation that is interesting to me and people who listen to perennials because like you're talking about wanting to feel 
like legitimate and know how to identify mm. yourself and feel some sort of sense of stability and security. Like, okay, I know who I am and what kind of person I am. And I can put this label on myself and I know exactly what I'm going to do with my life. And like, just what I discovered as I grew up was, oh, no, haha. Like, that never that's happens. not like, yeah. <laughs> you can't, yeah, you can never do that. And that's also, I think, kind of what we were talking about with these authors when you discover more about them as human beings and the complications of their personalities, their lives, their circumstances, how they changed over time. Like, it's easy when you're a teenager to just want, like, that sparkly, happy ending, quote unquote, of, you know, Elizabeth Bennet or something. Um, So I just think talking about yeah, like grieving for old dreams and making choices and pivoting and and accepting like you're just constantly negotiating different parts of yourself and sometimes some parts are going to be coming out stronger and there might be other parts of you that feel sad about what you don't have time for but you just kind of keep making choices, right? And like Yeah. And you- it's it's not mercenary to choose money. Right, right. I remember I did, I studied creative writing and on the first day of my course, this boy said to me, the difference between you and me is that you want to write to make money and I want to write to make art. Mm, Yeah. And I was like, I mean, okay, I'll see (laughs) you when your career is not going anywhere. It just seemed insane to me that you wouldn't want to be like paid your dues for what you've done or like be... And I think it's a, a very like male perspective. Mm-hmm. Like he didn't need to worry about money mm-hmm. because money would just like money, the money would come. And yeah. what's, yeah, what's been really interesting is like, there isn't a single woman writer that we've covered in the show uh, who wasn't writing and just thinking about money the whole yeah. time, the yeah. whole time. Yeah. And um, there's a really great book called um, How to Suppress Women Writers by Joanna Russ, which I'd recommend. And it talks about like the way that we categorize writers and something that's said about women writers that isn't said about male writers is that um, they write for the sake of it or they they write because they had to. And in the sense that they really needed to get something out and they just needed to get it on paper. But they wrote to feed their families and to pay their rent and to to eat. And though that doesn't make their work any less valid and just in the same way it wouldn't make a a man's work any less valid. And so we do need to stop questioning or like just second guessing the fact that women writers wanted the check. They wanted to like pay for a house. Yeah. And that's not wrong. And that's not wrong. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with that. Because also like women are so often the other thing as I've grown up that like it's like at some point my eyes opened and I was like, oh, women are taking care of like everything. Um, so often women are like making money, the primary caregivers and all, and really dealing with like looking at the Brontes, like, you know, their brother versus them. Um, but just really dealing with a lot of the logistics of day to day living and drudgery and the stuff that means you survive or you don't. And it's kind of like what we're seeing right now, um, with people who are so scared losing their jobs and things like that it's not like oh they just love money for the sake of it it's like no people are scared because money means shelter and food and medicine so there's nothing I mean flimsy about these women wanting to make money (laughs) I mean like Harriet Beecher Stowe trying to get her sink fixed teach all those children Sunday school 
like trying also to write works that will change hearts and minds on slavery. Mm-hmm. She's got a lot on her plate. Yeah. I know like Abe Lincoln, when he met her, he did say something along the lines of like, oh, so this is the little woman that started that great war. And uh, it's like, yeah, she's got a lot going on. She's trying to feed her family, give birth to many children and, you know, and write. And there's no, yeah, we should, that's why I like looking at the whole life. Yeah. Too. And it's like, I heard that the, I, I think Paul McCartney has said like he and John Lennon would sit down and be like, okay, let's write a swimming pool. Like they were thinking about money too. (laughs) Then think Mm -hmm. about it too, but um, yeah. I don't, but women get judged more, I think. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. I think Lauren and I can both agree just from like the being a woman and trying to like looking at women and uh, the sacrifices that they had to make to kind of write and to support and do everything that they were doing. And then some of the things that maybe we have had to sacrifice just for like to all of the younger women out there and, and younger guys, if you're in a relationship, and someone is like, you're working too hard or you're not paying enough attention to me or you're putting too much time into it. That is not the relationship for you because doing something like the podcast and the work that we do takes up a lot of time. And I think Mm -hmm. Lauren and I are both very lucky to have partners who just let it happen. Mm -hmm. Right, like every holiday that Sam and I have taken since we got together has basically been him driving me and Lauren around on a bonnet at dawn trip or like meeting me in America because I've gone for a bonnet at dawn trip and I can maybe spare him five days at the end of yeah. it but yeah you you know it that's what I have to do and Jane Austen didn't get married because she knew that in her in her time if she got married to someone she wouldn't be able to write anymore or there was a risk of not being able to write anymore and so she chose what she had to choose and I'm very grateful that I haven't had to make that choice because I am able to keep working because of the time that I live in but also people like that is still cut off people are still told well be realistic and it's not just like partners it will be like family or school or work and people say like when are you going to stop doing that thing that you're doing and like you don't need to so just like push through and if if you're still interested enough to maybe socialize less or to stay up a little later or wake up a bit earlier that's the sign that you should be doing it Mm-hmm. yeah and it doesn't I mean, matter what anyone else says I definitely felt that very strongly when I became a mother because I think a lot of my family especially was like okay when are you gonna stop mm-hmm. doing x y and z so you can do the thing that's most important and um I think in my 20s especially I felt like I had to accomplish so much before I had a child I like set all of these like really unrealistic goals for myself. Like you got to do this by this age and this by this age and this by this age, because once you have a kid, it's over or that's going to demand so much of your time and energy that you're not going to be able to do anything else. And, you know, I had a lot of those ideas and that's not true, really. I, don't I mean, like... I'm tired, <laughs> yeah. but like you do find people like Hannah and I have a great working relationship. My husband and I have a great, you know, working relationship. I'm grateful to him for editing the podcast and spending as much time on it as he does. But like you you just need to figure out those relationships and figure out like honest lines of communication about like how you're feeling and your workload. And that's a struggle. I'm not perfect at it, but I'm working on it. So yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, I love that you <laughs> mentioned that too, because I think one of the things that the most dangerous thing I think about, like, you know, I know the most about Jane Austen, so I keep going to her, but Austen or and, and Jane Eyre is like when we focus so much on that one romantic relationship. And there's so many other relationships in the books, but when kind of all the action, you know, there's like a lot of the action revolves around that marriage plot and it ends with the couple uniting. It feels like, oh, if I have like, and for some people, maybe they focus more on, maybe for some people it's a partner, maybe for others it's more like having a child. Like that that relationship, that person will make, all of it make sense to me and, and will you know, will be the focal point of my life and will make me feel alive and fulfilled and all of these things. And I think like what we can see from the women who wrote these stories was that their work was so incredibly important to them. And and it's not something to be, um, I don't know, like it's such, there's- Easily given up. Yeah, there's so many things that, that we need in life to feel- alive and fulfilled and to find meaning and it's not just like achieving a certain relationship um but I think I think that's why all of these authors make pains to like very few of these women don't have options mm -hmm. you know like they they might I mean even in the books where they do end up with someone like Jane Eyre has options that aren't Rochester she choose yeah. like she chooses to go back to him and Elizabeth Bennet has options that aren't Darcy and Marianne Dashwood has like they all have options they all have choices uh, there's very few books where someone goes in and it's like this one relationship and it's the only thing they want and they mm -hmm. don't think about other things or weigh up the consequences and I do think when it's it's really easy to dismiss all of these books as being like a boy meets girl uh boy and girl get married and it's like this straight traje trajectory I think there's a reason because it's almost like the authors are kind of giving you permission to to weigh up stuff mm -hmm. to like weigh up your options and to really think and it's just what's important in your life and what's important in your relationship and so I think like Jane uh Jane Austen Charlotte Bronte Louise May Alcott they're all doing it they're all kind of saying to women like you've, you've got to think it through you've got to think about mm -hmm what what you need you know yeah. we all have time for a relationship we just don't have time to waste our time I think mm -hmm. is the thing that these writers have taught me mm -hmm. yeah and then in some ways like I think with Jane Austen she's like okay I'm gonna let you indulge in the fantasy of like being able to like have it all work out where you have the money and you have the you know like respect uh, yeah and like <laughs> you have this, this yeah. balance of like all these things that you would really love to have I think that's great got room Got real in there at the end. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, thank you guys so much. Like, this has been so delightful for me. Thank you so much for listening yeah, to you. you. And thanks to your mother. Small oh, compliments yeah. to your mother. Yeah, compliments to your regards to your mother. She'll be sorry. Yes. Thank you so much for listening to the Perennials podcast. I'm Victoria Russell. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with a friend, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and leave a review on iTunes. It really helps other people to find the show. You can follow along on Instagram at perennialspodcast, and feel free to send me an email at perennialspodcast at gmail.com. The song you're hearing now is I Orbit a Moon by Paul Finn.